We are continuing in the book of James. Um, And today the scripture comes from um, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is available to us. I pray that you will speak through Ryan today as he preaches from your word. Illuminate and enlighten our hearts and our minds. And may we walk out of here knowing you more. Um, Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So we got our work cut out for us today, if you didn't hear. (laughs) This is, this is, just going to jump right in here. This is one of the the most misinterpreted uh, scriptures in the entire Bible. Um, and the one that most people think of when they, when they hear the, the, um, about the book of James. So that means that we need to have precision in our interpretation and our application because if not, we run the risk of having false assurance or false guilt about our lives. And neither of which will be helpful for us on our journey toward Jesus uh, together. So, so what we're looking for uh, from God's Word is conviction and true assurance for genuine followers of Jesus Christ who have saving faith. And, and if you're in here and you're not yet a Christian, what God's Word is intended to do in your life is to convict you and draw you to repentance. And so uh, as, we, as we delve into this, I think it's important for us to zoom out and look at the nature of saving faith as a whole before we look at the angle that James talks about it in. Because... Uh, if if not if not uh, if we don't do it this way, then we could we could pit uh, the apostle Paul and James against one another, which is not what the scriptures uh, do. So so let's let's dig in and just kind of look at the big picture of what saving faith is, because James is talking about a, a certain kind of faith, and we need to know what that faith is. So in the Garden of Eden, God created us with with good work to do, uh, to lovingly obey His commands and cultivate the world out of our love uh, for him. So there was this covenant that God made, this agreement that he made with his people, that if they obeyed his word and did his works perfectly, that they would live forever. Now, you and I know how that ended up. Uh, They disobeyed and broke what theologians call the covenant of works. And because of that, the curse of death was then imputed to all of mankind. 
But, but here's what happens is that God enters in and he does the work on our behalf. He alone does it and he, and he does what's necessary to keep us in relationship. And he fulfills the, the covenant that we could never fulfill on our own. But then we're sent into this world broken hearted and broken souled with this promise. This promise that he will, that, his, that from his offspring, that from the woman's offspring, one would come to rescue the world and save it from the bondage of sin. That's what we celebrate in Advent, the coming of Jesus. So Jesus comes on the scene and he does that. He does 100% of the work that you and I could never do to save our souls. Listen to what uh, he prays to his father right before he goes on the cross from John chapter 17, verses 3 through 5. He says this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He prays this to his father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished, past tense, accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So in other words, Jesus is headed back to his father. That's what's getting ready to happen. He's going he's to conquer the cross. He's going to conquer sin and death. And he's going to go back to his father. And our rescue is found in his work that he completes on the cross. This is why Jesus' last words on the cross were what? It is finished, right? The best word that we could ever hear in our struggle and our grasping after a way to be one with God again. So, so Jesus Christ and his work are the foundation of our salvation. That's why the Apostle Paul would write some 30 years later that it's by grace you've been saved, Ephesians 2. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So it's not faith plus church attendance. It's not faith plus tithing. It's not faith plus speaking in tongues. It's not faith plus sexual purity. It's not faith plus anything else that can save you. It's faith Alone. Faith in Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. That's the equation, saving faith. Now, in our context today, we're, 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 we're reading and learning from James, who is Jesus' little brother. And he, he happens to pastor a church in Jerusalem. Now, it's a church that's predominantly filled with Jewish Christians, uh, Jewish Christians who have the law, some of them thinking obedience to the law could save them. And, and then there's this other side of, of how the law hits some of the Christians is, is they think that the law doesn't matter at all anymore. The works of God don't matter at all anymore. And, and they become uh, what, what theologians would describe as, as anti-law or antinomian. James is writing to address that kind of faith. That kind of faith that says that, that the works of God, the law of God does not matter anymore. Because what we see from Jesus in his teaching is that Jesus came not to abolish the law, not to abolish the good works in the world, but he came to fulfill it. And he came to fulfill it in us through faith, how we live out in this world as well. To continue as a continuation of those good works. In fact, listen, listen to what uh, G Jesus says in John chapter 14. John 14 is all about the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is described as a, as a guarantee, as a comforter as an ever-present help for us in our time of need, as God's presence with us, Emmanuel, God with us. 
Here's what, here's what Jesus says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's talking to his disciples. He says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. But not only that, greater works than these will he do. Hold up, Jesus. you got to be kidding me. Greater works? I mean, you, you conquered death. You conquered the grave. Jesus, what could you be talking about? What, what could you possibly be talking about? He goes on to say this. He says, you're going to do these because I'm going to the Father. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to do those good works, to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So, so Jesus says that, that he's come to do greater works through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That, that those works that Jesus began and that he did for our salvation will continue because we are actually one with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be a Christian. And something that we forget so often is that we have union with Christ. And so when we look at this passage from James, like people who don't have union with Christ, of course we think that our works are, are like a, a ladder that we can stand up against the wall of salvation and climb ourselves up to. That is not what Jesus says about works. No, Jesus says that, that our union with him produces the type of works that Jesus began when he was on this earth. And because we live on this earth filled with the power of his spirit, those works continue through us. That's what saving faith is. And this is what James is talking about today. This is what we need to lean into today. He spends his time talking about the nature of saving faith. This isn't a treatise on justification. This isn't where, where he goes, James goes into the, the, the nature and the nuances of justification by faith alone. No, Paul does that in the book of Romans. You can read it backwards and forward and still have a lot of questions because it's so dense. But one thing is, is absolutely clear in the book of Romans, starting in, in uh, chapter 5, is that it is only faith that saves us. But that faith is a faith that, 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 uh, that produces good works in his world. It's a faith that you can see. This is why our big idea is this. The works of Jesus done for us continue to live through us. All right, now that I've uh, given a little uh, overview there, uh, open your Bible to James chapter 2 and we'll dig in together and give this thing a shot here. First thing you need to know about saving faith is this. Not all faith is saving faith. Not all faith is saving faith. Let's look at James 2, 14 through 17. Here's what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? That certain kind of faith, can it save him? Is it sufficient for salvation? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, Without giving the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So, so we're reaching back into what Brandon preached on last week about partiality. And James says, hey, listen, when you gather together, you know, uh, if you show preferential treatment to people that have money and, and, you, and you, you 
don't show the same type of treatment to people that don't have money, you're in sin. He says that. So he's kind of picking up off of that theme about, about poverty and how the church should address it. He's saying if we see someone in need and all we have is, bless your hearts, I wish I could help, then, uh, then maybe the Spirit is not at work in us. He says it pretty cut and dry for us. Many times God has given us all of the provision the world needs as Christians. It's just in our houses, our refrigerators, and our bank accounts. But what happens is that we get jaded by our individualistic culture and, and, uh, uh, and a few deceptive people along the way that we try to help. And we, 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 we get into this state of unbelief where we say, you know what, everyone's just evil, everyone's got ill intent, everyone's deceptive, I'm not helping anyone. And then we just kind of let it fade into the background. Now, now I'm, not, I'm not giving, uh, my aim right here, and James doesn't lead us there, to give a, a, a handbook on, on how to address panhandlers as a Christian. Okay, that's not where I'm going with this. Um, but, I, but I will say that it requires faith to enter into what Jesus has called us to do through what James writes here, to enter into the, to, to the story of others. The, the, the problem uh, in our context, in our country, uh, is that we, we've, got this, um, we've got this belief that, um, uh, that classes don't matter in our context, in our country, because we live in this free country, and, and everyone has opportunity, it blinds us to the fact that, that some people have more opportunity than other people. Amen? It, it, it is the land of opportunities, the land of freedom, but some people, frankly, have more opportunity than others. And James is drawing that out for us this morning. So what type of good works does James have in mind to accompany our faith? What kind? Well, I think Jesus is helpful in Matthew 25 when when he talks about uh, the, the, the person that, that would serve him and, and be his disciple. Uh, what we see is that Jesus, uh, he's, he's, he's talking about judgment, and he says at the end of time, you know, uh, we'll separate the sheep, uh, the, the chosen ones, the ones that, that live on mission and follow me and trust me and have, are saved by faith alone, that have his company by this works, and then, and then there will be the goats, the ones who, whose lives don't look like that. Whose, whose actions and deeds don't follow that pattern and therefore prove that their faith is not genuine and saving. And, and, and then the, the, the disciples uh, are kind of, they're, they're asking questions about this. So Jesus says this, he says, when I was hungry, you gave me food. James, James talks about that as well. When I was thirsty, you, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. And when I was in prison, you came to me. And the disciples are kind of mystified by what he says. And they said, Jesus, when did we do that? I don't remember you being in prison. I don't, I don't remember you being naked or hungry. I don't, I don't remember that. And then Jesus says something that we should never forget. He said, whatever you have done to the least of these brothers, you have done to me. You see, it's not the poor that we're actually serving. It's Jesus that we're serving through the poor. That's what Jesus shows us. Those are the types of good works that he has in mind for us. Those inconveniences. And I'll have you notice this about James chapter 2. Is that these aren't strangers that James is talking about. A lot of times we think about service. We think about mercy. And we correlate it to strangers. He says, if you see a brother or sister in need... 
you know, you're, you're called to help them, not only with your words, but with your actions and, and with your deeds. And so what I find Matthew 25 to be for me is a grid. If I can look at my calendar as a follower of Jesus, no matter where I get my paycheck from, if I can look at my calendar and not see Matthew 25 somewhat reflected in it, I've got to ask myself, is, can this faith save me? That's the question that he asks. Is that faith, the one that doesn't have deeds in it, can that faith save me? And it's a question that we have to answer. And, and, and he goes further to describe this type of faith by talking about two negative examples. This kind of faith that doesn't save you. He says there's dead faith and there's demonic faith. So let's talk about dead faith here. This, this word uh, translated uh, from dead is a word that means a useless or futile faith. It's, it's a faith that's inactive. Sometimes that might indicate that it's not real faith. Other times it might indicate that it's dormant faith. That you've got saving faith, you're just not living obediently right now. It could mean both of those things. So, so James writes to protect the church from dead orthodoxy. Dead orthodoxy means that you've got all of the right answers, but you've got no joy. You've got all of the right theology, but your mission in life is, mis- is, is correcting wrong theology. Let me just say this. God doesn't need us to protect his word. He preserves his word by his own power. He's been doing it for thousands of years. Thousands and thousands of years. Do we need orthodoxy? Absolutely. Yes, we need that. But James says if your orthodoxy doesn't lead to orthopraxy, then your orthodoxy is dead. Orthopraxy, what's that mean? It means a practice that follows what you believe. A church that's on mission has, people, has patience with people that are in formation, right? People that don't have all of the right theology yet, who haven't read the, the Bible forwards and backwards. And as mature Christians, you have this fantastic opportunity to come alongside people whose faith is being more fully formed. Think about this. When I first came into the Reformed tradition, and that's what our our church falls under that umbrella, uh, the Reformed tradition of Presbyterian church, when I first came into this, I came kind of through the back door from a non-denominational church, and I was, guys, I was absolutely terrified to come in. I was so afraid that I was going to say something wrong, I was going to misquote a Bible verse, or I was going to say something that didn't make sense to people, that I was terrified. That's the kind of culture that our tradition has. Do you know that? From the outside coming in, it's scary to come into a church that's reformed and has good th- theology and preaches expositionally and sings hymns and all those kinds of things. We have all different kinds of preferences, but you just need to know that. If we're going to be a church that doesn't have dead orthodoxy, we have to be a church that, that, that is almost like the way that Priscilla and Aquila approach Apollos in Acts 18. Are you familiar with this? It's, it's where they come alongside this guy, Apollos, who's a leader in the church. He's preaching and teaching, but he, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't know the Holy Spirit's there yet. Kind of a big deal, right? And so they, he's only heard about the baptism of John. They come alongside, and they, it says they pull him aside and gently tell him the way of Christ. What would it be like for us as mature believers in this room to be those kinds of Christians with people that are new to the faith? One of our elders says this. He says, if, if, uh, 
He says, if, you, if in your small group, your missional community, you don't hear something uh, maybe kind of heretical or borderline heretical every once in a while, you might not be on mission. All right? Right? Because God, your orthodoxy can be dead if it's not followed up with deeds, is what James says. The only safeguard from orthodoxy is humble orthopraxy, where we, we practice what we preach in humility. I, I, I was recently at a, at a birthday party, and, uh, and so they, they had a bounce house at the birthday party. Now, you guys, some of you guys know my history with bounce houses, so I, I kept my distance. I didn't want any trips to the ER or anything like that. And so, uh, but, but the, all the kids were in the bounce house. They're bouncing up and down and having a great time. And then all of a sudden, the air just starts to go out of the bounce house. All, so all the kids are inside, and it's collapsing on top of them, right? I mean, can you, it's like bloody murder. There's two-year-olds in there, four-year-olds, and then it's just, it's just mass chaos. And so we're trying to figure out what's gone wrong. I make sure not to get in the bounce house. I'm just around the outsides of it. And, and, uh, and then I noticed that the, the plug is unplugged, that they were jumping up and down having a great time. It pulled the plug apart. I think it's a great picture of what dead orthodoxy is. You've got this thing that's intended for joy and laughter and happiness and fellowship, and it's got no air in it because it's unplugged from the Spirit. We can fall into that trap, church. Maybe we are more prone to fall into that trap than maybe any other tradition, right? Orthopraxy, humble orthopraxy is the only safeguard from dead orthodoxy. So he goes on to say that, that it's not just dead faith, it, 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 you know, that, that, that faith that doesn't save you, it's not only dead, but it's demonic. This just really struck me. Let me read it again for you, James chapter 2. He says, uh, he, says, uh, he says this in verses 18 through 20. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith. All right, let me say that again. Some will say, you have faith, I have works. In other words, some will say, I've got good theology. Other people will say, we're doing a lot of good work with the poor. Right? You can walk into any church this morning and people will lean different ways. All right? You lean different ways. Some of you want me to preach more expositionally. Others of you want us to be doing more in the community. We all have our preferences. The thing that the Bible teaches is that we need both of us to live in tension and community together. That, that, that a Christian is one that does both. So he says, there are these types of people. Some that say I have faith, some that say I have works. He says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So James goes on to say that, that a faith that doesn't, is not accompanied by works, it doesn't produce works, is not only dead, it's demonic. So what he's saying is this. I just want to make it real clear. Hell is full of really good theology. Does that scare anybody? Hell is full of really, really, really good theology. Really good theology. Lots of good Bible verses. Hell is full of good theology. Even demons believe in God's sovereignty. Even demons are monotheistic. Even demons bow their knee to Jesus Christ now. Now, this type of faith makes them shudder now. Why does it make them shudder? Because they can't repent and trust Jesus. It terrifies them that God is one. It terrifies them that Jesus Christ has conquered death and sin. He's victorious over the grave. Because there is no opportunity for them to repent. Now, now here's the, the, the thing about this non-saving demonic type of faith. 
It does not transform us into the image of Jesus through word and deed. That, that's the signal of it, is that you've got a lot of really good things to say, but your life has not changed. Transformation is the evidence of saving faith. So there's this story in, in the Scriptures, I think it's in Luke and maybe Mark, uh, about this, this guy from the country of the Gerasenes, which is on the other side of the, the Sea of Galilee from where Jesus did most of his ministry. And um, his name was Legion. I like to call him Naked Bloody Guy because it just sounds better. But um, Legion is, is there, Naked Bloody Guy's there, and Jesus and his disciples pull up on the scene. And, uh, and, and this guy is so messed up that, uh, that he's torn off his clothes off. He lives in a graveyard. He's, he's, he's got sh- broken shackles on his hand because nothing can hold him down. I mean, he's a madman. So the city doesn't know what to do with him. The town doesn't know what to do with him, so they keep him in the graveyard. And so he roams among the graves. And so when, 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 when Legion, this demon-possessed man, uh, encounters Jesus, he, he comes up to him as soon as the boat lands. And he's possessed by this demon, and he says this, When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. It's pretty good theology, isn't it? This demon-possessed man has this monotheistic theology about Jesus Christ. Jesus hasn't even raised from the dead yet. Think about that. He still knows who he is. In other words, demons have a better theology than we could ever imagine. But it cannot change them. It cannot save them. It cannot transform them because they cannot repent. God has not given them that gift. He's not given them that opportunity. Now, Legion does. And it says that, that he's transformed. The scriptures note how he's been transformed. The, the, the town doesn't believe it because it's so miraculous, but he's, but he's clothed in, in his right mind is what Mark 8 says. That's what happens to a person that's been changed by God's grace is that there's evidence of it. Whether it's dead faith or demonic faith, it's a useless faith. And it, and it gives us reason to pause and to examine our own lives. I, I don't know where you're at today. All I know is this, is I don't want you to walk away with, with false guilt or false assurance or any of that kind of stuff. But if the Holy Spirit wants to convict your life, I don't want to get in the way of that. I've heard some guys preach on this text, and they overly apologize for James. They say, oh, Paul says this, Paul says this, James says it, Paul says this, and they just go over the top. But I think James hits us uh, with such impact here that we consider the real nature of our faith and whether it's saving or not. And so I just, I'll lay that before you today. And I ask you, do you have saving faith? Do you have a, can that kind of faith that you have actually save you? Is it, is it founded on Jesus alone? Is it evidenced in a transformed life and behavior? Because that's what saving faith looks like, James says. He goes on to give us a couple of examples, Abraham and, and Rahab. So the second point is this, saving faith always shows itself through works. Uh, let's look at Abraham, James uh, 2, 21 through 24. Scriptures say this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? He's talking about Genesis 22. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Listen to that. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works 
and not by faith alone. That's a controversial verse, isn't it? He's saying that, that, that Abraham's works, what he did with Isaac, the extent that his faith took him to was the evidence that he had saving faith. That's what he's saying. He saw it as a complete package, confession and deed. A lot of times we see faith as just word only. James is expanding that. He's redefining it for us. I, I was invited to preach on that, that story of Abraham and Isaac when I was a youth pastor in Indiana. This is probably 10 or 11 years ago. And, and I was big on object lessons as a youth pastor. I still kind of am sometimes. And uh, so I had this idea that, that I wanted to really show... Um, I really wanted to, to experience the tension of what Abraham felt, to, to really see the faith that it required. And so uh, I went to the pet store, and uh, I bought a goldfish. You're thinking, okay, n- not a big deal. And then I, I, I got a blender, and, um, and I filled the blender up with water, and I put the goldfish in the blender. And then I, I, I plugged the blender in to an extension cord, and then I plug the extension cord into the wall. And my idea was to just kind of leave this thing on the stage the whole time when I was preaching. And, uh, and, then, and then, you know, I kind of w- was thinking through it. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to lift up the blender that has the goldfish in it. And because you guys, you know what would happen, right, if the blender's on, right? Okay, okay, yeah. So anyway, so I lifted, <laughs> I lifted up the blender. I pushed, I lifted up the, the top of it, pushed the button. It's like, and then I set it back down. And then the, the idea is, is that if everything worked perfectly, that the guy behind the curtain was going to unplug it when I pushed the button the next time. <laughs> and so, like, it, I mean, you, you're feeling, I mean, because it's like, you know, Abraham raised the knife. He was ready. I mean, it was, it was, a, tense, it was a tense moment that required faith. And, and by, I think I really believe this. I, by God's grace, uh, I got the stomach bug that night and was not able to preach on that text. I, so I had Isaac, or Ike, I called him. Uh, on my desk for the next, he lived forever, I mean, three or four years, um, as a reminder of not to do stupid things while I'm preaching. But um, anyway, the, 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 the point of this, if I can recover here, um, the point that James is making about Abraham is this, is how, how would you know that Abraham really had faith unless it was tested? How would, how would, you, how, how would Abraham be the patriarch of the faith if, if he didn't actually have to show that he had faith, right? If, if he didn't actually have to trust God for 70 years or whatever it was to have a son that could be passed down and become a great nation. And then for God to ask him to take it away to make sure that he worshiped God and not his son. How would we know if Genesis 22 was not in the Scriptures? But the Scriptures say that, that faith was active with his works. And, and he uses this word that faith was completed by his work. That, In other words, that if we didn't see the works that his faith produced, he would have an incomplete faith. We wouldn't get that full picture of what God does in a person when he saves them. We wouldn't have it all. I, I love what John Calvin says in his uh, uh, Antidote to the Council of Trent, if you're looking for some light reading. Uh, he, says, he says this, it is faith alone which justifies, which is what we've talked about. And yet that faith which justifies is not alone. I think that's a helpful way to look at it, isn't it? To say that if my faith is not producing good work in God's world for his kingdom and his glory, is it really faith that has come from God? If there's no greater works than Jesus did, what kind of faith do I have? Now, if, 
I think a lot of times we, we, we think about the assurance of salvation, and you've heard this kind of catchy phrase. I don't know who came up with it. Once saved, always fa- saved, right? You've heard that phrase before. It's, uh, it's true, okay? But, but I think it's not helpful. I think it's not helpful because it, it tends to produce in us a lack of expression of saving faith through the good works that God has called us to do. I think what might be more helpful, uh, a better way to describe assurance of salvation would be those who finish the race in faith are saved, right? This is what, the, when the scriptures talk about this idea that Abraham's faith was completed by his works. Instead of saying once saved, always saved, we're not encouraging people to, 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 to be completed by those good works. And so it's true, but I just don't know that it's that helpful for us. The, the, the other example that he gives is somebody who couldn't be more different than Abraham, Rahab. Okay, Uh, let me just read verses 25 and 26 here to to kind of close us out here. He says this, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Rahab, whole different person. Abraham's rich, Rahab's probably poor. Abraham's Jewish, uh, Rahab is a Gentile. Abraham is the, 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 the father of God's people, the patriarch. Rahab's a prostitute. Uh, Abraham is, 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 is charged with, with going from his homeland, finding the promised land. Rahab is in Jericho, a pagan, pagan city that will be destroyed by God. And so they're just so different. And what you see from it is that this passage excludes the possibility that it's anything but God's grace through faith that saves sinners. That it couldn't be Abraham because he had his stuff to sew together, and it couldn't be Rahab because she was so terrible and awful and broken. No, it was, it was faith, and God gives that faith as a gift to those that he chooses to give it to. There is, there, there is no, looking at it from a worldly point of view, there's, there's nobody that's like, oh yeah, they're definitely God's chosen people over here. He excludes that possibility for us, that it's anything but faith that saves us. And God gives that gift. Now, the, the, the interesting thing about this is that they have faith, and that faith is active, but that faith is not perfect. Think about this. Abraham, Abraham's given this promise, you know, wait for it, you know, um, do, do, do your part, Abraham, you know, and Sarah, and trust God. But they come up with this scheme, Hagar, right? They come up with this scheme, you know, well, well maybe we're a little smarter than God. We know how to get an offspring, Right? And they put their heads together and, and you know, and, and, and out comes a child. But it's not Isaac, right? No, it's not. And so they have to repent. It wasn't in faith. They, 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 they had this activity, this trust in God, but it wasn't perfect. Rahab, what is the first thing that Rahab does that we have recorded uh, as, as uh, right after she has faith to hide the spies? What does she do? She lies to the king. Bold-faced liar. Her faith isn't strong enough to believe that she can tell the truth and God still work. She lies. And, and we go back and forth, well, maybe that lie was justified. No, it was a lie. It's breaking the command, right? It was sin. And so we see that, 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 that faith was working. Faith was, was along, or, or faith was working and producing works in the world, but there were not perfect works like Jesus's. So these greater works were not perfect works. Now, I was... I was at Legoland uh, a couple weeks ago, and 
Um, if you're unfamiliar with what Legoland is, it's like, it's like a lot of roller coasters, okay? Like too many. I, in fact, I'm experiencing what I've heard some of you say, like, hey, I just can't ride rides like I used to be able to. Okay? I mean, I probably rode 40 roller coasters in a day uh, because some of the rides you had to ride, like I had to ride with every kid, right? And so, like, I'm in the front seat of, you know, the flying machine, which is pretty fast little coaster, four straight times, right? I'm just sitting there popping other kids on, and I'm just kind of feeling nauseous. So we went, uh, went for a little reprieve to the, the boating school, which is this other ride there. And then it's, it's, so basically, it's like this, this little boat that's in about 18 inches of water, and you drive it around and wreck into things, and everybody laughs. It's a good time. And so it's a low-key kind of ride. And so as we were in line, I, I had this moment um, that, that was that just touched me. It was, it was a special moment. It, um, there, was this, there was this family that had some older children. They looked a little too old to, to ride the ride, frankly. And, um, and, uh, and one of them and, and the father are in line on the little dock to get on the boat in the, that's in the 18 inches of water. And, uh, and they, they kind of queued it up. He's probably 12 or 13 with the dad, and it just kind of seemed childish. And, and, and he goes, the, the kid goes to step on the boat, and um, and he's, he's, uh, he's, he gets nervous. It's like he had this faith that the boat would hold them and they could go on this little kiddie ride together. But all of a sudden he starts to panic. And, and his legs begin to separate. And I kid you not, does full-on splits and falls down on the dock. And there's probably 100 to 150 people in line that this happens right in front of. And so in that moment, I'm like, one, I'm kind of like embarrassed embarrassed for him for a second. And, and then the dad starts making excuses. Come on, son, just pull it together. You can do this. And, and I'm, and I'm kind of, in my mind, I'm siding with the dad. Like, I know what it's like for, like, your, like, maybe your kids disappoint you or you feel disappointed or, you know, you just feel embarrassed and you just don't really know what to do with the feelings. And so you kind of take it out on your kid. And, 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 and he's feeling this. But then all of a sudden, I, the Spirit just kind of shifted me to move from judgment to compassion. In that moment, I I, I, I felt what the kid felt, the kid that was, you know, too big to be riding it anyway and just couldn't manage to muster enough strength, courage, faith to pull it off. And so he crashes and comes tumbling down to have a lapse of faith, an insufficiency of faith. Some of you in here this morning are feeling that right now. You've got faith, but you're like, I don't know about faith. It can save me. I, I, it, it's not really the kind of faith you see in the Bible. And, and, and I want to I encourage you that just like Rahab and just like Abraham, you and I will have lapses of the expression of our saving faith on this journey through our deeds. We're not going to do it perfect. In fact, we're going to fail miserably sometimes. That's not the point of what James is making is that you've got to have perfect deeds that match your faith, perfect works that match your faith. We will, we will experience what it's like to know what our faith is calling us to do, you know, to make the phone call, to, 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 to share the gospel, to reach out, to give the money, to invite someone in. We'll, we'll experience that, but we won't always do it perfectly. And this is where faith works in a different way than we expect it to, where faith pursues us and faith calls us to repentance, and it's out of God's kindness that we repent and we turn to him. We repent for not trusting and doing the whole Hagar thing or lying to the king or, or whatever it is for you. And when we turn and the expression of our faith is expressed through our works of repentance and turning back toward God, 
Those are good works, too, that show that we have saving faith. After all, Abraham, that dirty, rotten sinner who couldn't trust God, did the Hagar thing. What does James say that he is? He's a friend of God. He's a friend of God. Christian, if you have faith in Jesus Christ alone and you have based your life on that confession, on that profession of faith that it's only Jesus that saves you, you are a friend of God. You are freed up to be about his good works in this world without being a fruit inspector, right? Where we're constantly inspecting, are my works good enough? Are they not like that person's? We're freed up to be about his good works. After all, Hebrews chapter 2 says this, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why, as Megan read earlier, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. The only diagnostic of saving faith is how we live. How the Spirit transforms And I want to invite you to experience more of Jesus through how that faith works itself out in you this morning. Let's pray. Father, uh, I'm honored to pastor this church. As I think about the faces that are in this room this morning, and maybe some that aren't, uh, I am uh, just overjoyed to think about all the ways that I get to see faith working itself out and the works of your kingdom. All of the ministry that's done that I never even know about. All of the people that are fed and sheltered and clothed and loved on who I have no idea about. Lord, this, this church in its heart of heart is not a church that waits for a program to do ministry. And I'm so joyful about that, Lord. So God, I pray that, that these, these good works, that we would see them as work that comes from you and greater works that come from you because your spirit dwells in us and that you love us, Lord, and that you're not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, that you identify with us even when we're embarrassing sometimes, even when we mess it up, God. You identify with us and your banner is over us. And so, Lord, we thank you, thank you, thank you for the gospel. And we pray that it would change us more and more today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.